Amen. That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Man, I'll tell you what, good stuff. All right, let's do this. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, and this is week four in our series, Church, We Are, dot, dot, dot. I love, dot, dot, dot. I mean, emails, writing, I'm a big dot, dot, dot fan. I, I cannot get enough of dot, 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 all right? I, I just had to come clean this morning about my love affair with dot, 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 okay? Now notice two things about the title, Church We Believe, okay? I mean, notice three things, two things, oh my goodness, rewind the tape. Hey, there's two things I want you to notice about the title, We Are Dot, Dot, Dot. Uh, Number one, I want you to notice that, that church is a, it's a we thing. Uh, understand, we cannot do church on alone, by ourselves. Uh, John Stott talks about what he calls the grotesque anomaly of an unchurched Christian. The grotesque anomaly, or another phrase that's used is the amputated saint. See, as Christians, we're, we are meant to be members of a body. Uh, therefore, when we are Christians without a church body, it's this grotesque anomaly. It's like you have this random finger and ear and eye and leg over here, but not connected to a body, right? That's not the way Scripture teaches that we're to follow Jesus. And number one, you know, church is a we thing. Another thing I, I want you to notice is, is that it is, it is we are not we believe. We are. Because being a, a Christ follower is not just saying we believe, but it's, it's who we are. It's what we are committed to. Now, so far in this series, we've, talked, we've made a bunch of the church is statements, but really they are we are statements. And what I'd like for you guys to do, if you all would stand with me, and, and I'm going I'm to read the uh, I'm gonna read the we are I need a volunteer to do the dot, dot. We won't do the dot, dots, even though it's tempting. All right? But I'm going to do the we are, and and then you guys do your line. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are. Good job. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are. And I would say, we are awesome. We are awesome. Go ahead, take your seats. Yeah, in this series, we're not merely talking about what we believe, but we're talking about who we are. Get it? Good. And like I've been saying, on November the 6th, after we talked about these core beliefs and these core commitments, we are the church. We are justice bearers. We are followers. We are devoted. We are servants. We are one. We are pursuing. After we've talked about all those things, I'm going to ask each of us to say, okay, I'm in. I'm ready to be part of this church family. Now, for some of you, that that simply means you're re-upping, right? You're going to be recommitting. You can think of it as a, a vow renewal ceremony. You might be married to your spouse for 25 years, and then on your 25th anniversary, you recommit yourself, you renew your vows. And so for some of us, on November the 6th, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a a vow renewal. For others who who are not yet members, this is a great opportunity. I mean, you've been attending Maple Grove for a while. You've been learning about Jesus, learning about this church, about who we're trying to be and, and what we're trying to do. And so I hope you take advantage of this opportunity to jump in with both feet on November the 6th and say, okay, I'm ready to be a part of this. I'm ready to be a part of this body and what this church is doing. And now I know that, you know, with, you know, DIA, NJIC, and JAG, that we have people that are here for a certain amount of time and they, they move on somewhere else, right? Um, I get that. You know, I was in the Navy for nine and a half years and, you know, had five or six different duty stations. But I do want to encourage you that, hey, while you're here, you know, uh, while you're here, get connected with the body, right? Get involved with the body. 
for the season that you're here. And on November the 6th, we'll have an opportunity to do that and say, hey, we're in. We're into what God is doing here. And, and, I, and I want you to know that I, I, I've been doing a lot of praying over the series, you know, praying that God will do you know, some Ephesians 3.20, immeasurably more than I can ask, think, or imagine kind of stuff. And in fact, I was actually in this room this morning at 4.15 a.m., right, and, and walking around for about 30 minutes, you know, my beats on, you know, worshiping God and just praying that, that God moves, that he does what he can only do. Now, before we jump into our main conversation for today, we are followers. We are what? We are Okay. Uh, I think it's important in understanding who we are to understand who we are not. You see, we tend to bring a, a, lot, of, a lot of preconceptions, uh, a lot of ideas about church, oftentimes unintentionally. And so as we get into this, let me just say that we are not fans. We're not fans. Understand, being a fan of Jesus is much different than being a follower of Jesus. Now, NFL football fans, football fans in general, are a different breed of sports fans. I, I went on Google and I found some images of how they dress when they go to sporting events, right? Now, imagine someone showing up at a golf tournament dressed like this, you know, or, you know, a tennis tournament, all right? But, but here are some of them. This guy right here, the Viking, right? Okay, next guy. The Bears, right? Okay, that's kind of scary looking dude. Got the bone and everything, all right? Here, here, here's another one, right? Okay, Raider fans are always scary, right? I mean, they are just scary, creepy, stay away from me, all right? Next fans we have here. Hey, that's, I got to admit, that's kind of weak for my Patriots, man. I'm kind of disappointed, all right? Here's one, here's one. Eagles, wow, they're having a great year, by the way. You're looking good there, guys. Here's a montage of a bunch of different ones, right? We got the cheese heads over there, right? Some crazy stuff. 0 and 16, not too happy, right? Uh, okay, dog pound. And this last one, I wasn't sure I was going to show that, all right? Uh, not, not because I thought it would make you stumble, but I thought it might make you nauseous, right? You know, I, I hope that's no one's relative in here, okay? If it is, I sincerely apologize. That could be me. Who knows, right? Okay, but, but no doubt about it, football fans are serious about their teams, probably more serious uh, of all sports fans, right? I, I never see tailgating at a baseball game. Going to a lot of them, they don't tailgate, right? They're just a different breed. But listen, even though they may paint their faces, wear the jersey, put cheese on their heads, wear some kind of orange barrel thing, <laughs> and dress up like Halloween on steroids, they still only spend the day in the stands. They never walk between the chalk lines. And not only that, but they didn't train all year long, getting up early, running, lifting weights, pushing their bodies when everything in them wanted to quit, running plays over and over and over again, watching hours and hours of game film and playing through pain and sweat and blood and injuries. You know, there's a big difference between being a fan who cheers in the stands or in the living room and those who are actually on the field playing the game and taking the hits. And now this week, I, I went on YouTube and looked up NFL's greatest hits, right? Not singing, but greatest hits. And, and I found a good one, right? And, and then we overlaid it with the song by the Christian rap artist Lecrae. You know, and, and what he's saying is, he's saying, um, you know, go hard, go hard, or go home. Go home. Lord, use me up. Use me up. So enjoy some hits some things that fans don't get to experience. You got to love that last guy. All right. Again, there's a big difference between being a fan or a player. Players take hits and fans don't. Church, check out the hits that some believers in the Bible took for God. Hebrews 11, verse 35 through 38. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world's not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. And if you're taking 
um, notes, circle these words, tortured, jeers, flogging, chained, prison, stoned, sawed in two, put to death, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. Now those are some serious hits that God's people took. And just this week in Acts chapter 14, some of us read these words beginning at verse 21. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships, that we must take many hits in order to enter the kingdom of God. Now understand, followers of Christ have, are, and will always be taking hits for him and for the gospel. Get it? Good. Now, now I, I, I got to admit that I, I really struggle with putting this message together. What's new, right? Not much there. I, I felt overwhelmed most of the week. I mean, this is huge, huge stuff. So, so I, I spent a lot of time in prayer asking God to, to help me to find a clear, bold, and concise way to say what he wants me to say about following him, knowing that I could never say all that needs to be said, and so thankful that there is a Holy Spirit who's always working and who is always making up for what I lack. Now, the way I, I want to spend our time this morning on this extremely important and potentially life-changing message, we are dot, 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 followers, not fans, is to answer four very basic questions. Now, for further study, I would really recommend a, a book by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. came out years ago. If you read it once, you probably ought to read it again. It's a phenomenal book. It, it's a great book about becoming a completely committed follower of Christ. Uh, also, you can check out on Right Now Media. Um, there's a study by Kyle Eidelman on Right Now Media. You may not know this, but uh, Right Now Media is this resource of 10,000 Bible studies and if you fill out your connection card and say, I want access to this, Hannah Yost will email you, and you'll have access to 10,000 Bible studies, conferences, marriage seminars, marriage teaching. There, there's videos for the kids, Veggie Tales. It's amazing, completely free to you. Just fill out your connection card, right? It's an enormous library of great teaching. Now, here are the four questions that, that we're going to try to answer today. Well, what does it mean to be a fan? Why do we think being a fan is even an option? What does Jesus say about following him? And, 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 and why is following Jesus, why is it worth it? And I think now would be a good time to pray. And a lot of times we like to pray with open palms, just kind of symbolic that we're, our hearts are open and ready to receive from God. Uh, Father, we humbly come into your presence. God, you are an amazing, unstoppable God. God, you loved us when we were unlovely. You pick us up when we fall. Lord, you fill us up when we're dry. You believe in us when we don't believe in ourselves. You constantly pursue us with your love, your mercy, your grace, and your compassion. There is no one like you, God. No one compares to you. And Father, I pray that this morning, Lord, that your spirit would just stir in us. Father, I pray that your word, which is living and active, would be heard living and actively. God, I pray that your word finds fertile soil. God, I pray that you somehow enable me to speak on this topic, Lord, and, and that today, Lord, that some of the fan that's still in me will be removed and consumed so I can be a more complete follower of your son, Jesus. And Jesus, help us. We're just, we're just people. We're just messed up, and we need you. And help us to see what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the most basic definition of a fan in the dictionary. An enthusiastic admirer. An enthusiastic admirer. It's the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on and his chest painted. He sits in the stands and cheers for his team. He's got a signed jersey hanging on the wall at home and bumper stickers on his car, and when it's game day for his college or pro team, he's got the flag waving when they go up and down 29. But he's never in a game. 
He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit in the open field. Sure, he knows about the players. They can rattle off their stats, but he doesn't know the players. He yells and cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There's no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he is, the chances are that if his team starts to string along a bunch of bad seasons, he may not be as excited as he was before, and the boo birds in the stadium may start singing because he is an enthusiastic admirer. He's a fan. And listen, even if he considers himself a follower, it's more like the kind of followers that you find on social media. Anybody ever heard of social media out there? All right? Here, here, here's some different social media. And, 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 and there's no shame, right? You know, if, if you're following anybody, your friends, following anybody on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever, raise your hand. You following anybody? All right? Got some followers out there. Awesome. Awesome. All right, uh, this week I, I, I went and found out, like, who are the number one people on Twitter, the top five that follow, who have people following on Twitter. I'll show the picture, see if you know who they are. Anybody know who that is? Who? Rihanna, right? 64 million followers. Okay, coming in at number four is? Anybody know who that is? Barack Obama, right? 77 million. No, coming in at number three. Taylor Swift, all right, 81 million. Way to go, Taylor. Okay, I love this one right here. The Beeb, right, all right, baby, Beeb. The Beeb is bringing it at number two, 86 million. Anybody, who do you think number one is? Anybody got a guess? Number one, who has more followers than anybody else on Twitter? No? Who, who, I heard it, I heard it. Katy Perry. 93 million. There you go. You got a lot of her records. Lou does. He's a Katy Perry fan, right? Okay. Uh, and you know what? All, they have one more follower each because this week, you know what I did? I'm following them right now. Everyone, I am a follower of Katy Perry, Barack Obama, Rihanna, The Beeb, and Taylor Swift as of this week. You know, I think Jesus has a lot of fans and followers like that these days. Fans who cheer when things are going well, but who walk away when there's a difficult season or when they find what they think is a better offer on the table. Fans who sit safely in the stands cheering, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and pain of the field. Fans of Jesus who know all about him, but they don't really know him. Check out this quote from Kyle Eidelman in his book, Not a Fan. Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer isn't an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. Biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close Enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Can you say ouch? I, I, I understand. A, a, a fan is someone who can and will take off his Jesus jersey depending on the situation. See, fans try to negotiate the terms of the deal. Sure, I, I'll follow Jesus, but I'm not going to sell my possessions and and give them to the poor, and off comes the Jesus jersey. Sure, I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to forgive the person who hurt me. They don't deserve it. And off comes the Jesus jersey. Sure, I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to save sex until marriage. And off comes the Jesus jersey. Sure, I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to go to church on a regular basis and to give a percentage of my money to the church, and off comes the Jesus jersey. Sure, sure, I'll follow Jesus, but don't ask me to serve in church or sacrifice a dollar a day to sponsor a kid through compassion or to rescue a, a child from sex trafficking, and off comes the Jesus jersey. You, you see, those are things that fans can do. Fans can take off their Jesus jersey, but followers cannot. You see, Jesus never left the door open 
for selective commitment or partial surrender. And there are no exception clauses. As Lecrae said in the song, with Jesus, it's go hard or what? Go home. Go hard or go home. It's in or you're out. Uh, bottom line, essentially what, what a fan is saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I love you and I'm committed to you, but let's not make this thing exclusive, right? Hey, I love you and I'm committed to you, but let's not make this thing exclusive. You see, fans don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in their lives, but Jesus wants to turn their life upside down. Fans don't mind a a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think that a little makeup is fine, but Jesus wants to do a, a, a makeover. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. Get it? Get it? Good. Question number two, why do we think being a fan is an option? I thought about this question a lot, and I came up with at least four reasons why we would think that being a fan, that being an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus is an option. Here's the first reason. Preachers, teachers, and church leaders. Now that one hits a little close to home, because every one of those words describes me. I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher, and I'm a church leader. And, and the truth is, I, I can really relate to what Kyle Eidelman says in the prologue to his book, Not a Fan. Here's what he wrote. Too often in my preaching, I've tried to talk people in the following Jesus. I, I wanted to make following him as appealing, comfortable, and convenient as possible. Question, wh- Why? Why would church leaders do this? Why would we make, want to make following Jesus as appealing, as comfortable, and as convenient as possible? Answer, we don't want to offend people. Answer, because we want a big church, we want to run people off. Answer, because sometimes our motives are pure. Like we really want this person to surrender to Christ and, and, and somehow... We, we think Jesus in and of himself is not appealing enough, so we got to do some things to try to sell Jesus to them. It's crazy. Why would we think that we can make Jesus more appealing than he already is? Amen? I, I like how he finishes his prologue to the book, Kyle Adelman, after he got convicted by this. He said, like, therefore, I will talk more about repentance than forgiveness, more about surrender than salvation, more about brokenness than happiness, and more about death than life. Yeah, once while on staff at a church, the lead pastor at the church I was at in a staff meeting said that, hey, you know, our job is not to interfere in the lives of our people, you know, and and not in the staff meeting, because that would have been inappropriate, but afterwards I said, hey, yo, (laughs) yo. Dot, dot, dot. Um, you know, hey, can we talk? And he said, sure. You know, and I knew him for a long time. And I said, I have a problem with what you said. I said, number one, they're not our people. They're Jesus' people. Number two, interfering is exactly what Jesus wants to do with our lives. And everybody needs that divine interference. Interesting, my position was phased out six months later. Don't know if it had anything to do with that. Um, Reason number two, why we think it's an option, is American culture, right? I mean, would you agree that we have a consumer-driven culture, and, and, and we tend to bring that mindset into church? I mean, many come to church asking this question, what can the church do for me? You see, the truth is, we prefer what I call a, a Burger King church. Now, when I, was, when I was a child, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, when you want to get a hamburger, you got that hamburger. You know, you got exactly the way they cooked that hamburger. And as somebody who hated onions, man, I was scraping them dehydrated suckers off like a madman, right? And then in 1974, the sky burst open, and Burger King came up with a new slogan. 
have it your way. And an awesome jingle, right? Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Have it your way, right? Hold the serving, hold the tithing, and the heart to do forgiving. Your demands, they don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve you your way, right? Isn't that something we want to do? We don't want to be Burger King Church. Uh, Number three, why we think being a fan is an option is the company that we keep. I mean, if everybody around us is a fan, we can actually convince ourselves that we're all followers of Jesus when, in fact, we're still just fans. Uh, There's a book out called Radical um, by, by David Platt, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Maybe you heard of it, read the book. It's a good book. But I think the title's wrong. And I think the fact that he called it Radical just shows how far we watered down following Jesus. You see, I, I think the book should actually be called Normal. Because Christians, by definition, are radical. We've been reading the book of Acts. I've been watching people die, like Stephen. I've been watching death threats, people thrown in prison, people losing losing their properties, having to flee their homes. I've been watching people dying, and it seems to me that radical is actually normal. But if we hang around a bunch of fans, hey, we're awesome, you're awesome, I'm awesome. Finally, why we think being a fan is an option is, is us, is you, is me. I mean, we have God's Word, right? <laughs> and either we have chosen not to read it, or we've chosen to ignore what it says, or at least we ignore the parts that we don't like and that make us uncomfortable. Question, is this conversation making anyone else uncomfortable as uncomfortable as it's making me. Good. Good. Because what if, what, what, what if life comes down to this one question? Am I a follower of Jesus? I, I, I mean, what if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and where we will spend eternity depends on how we answer that question? Am I Are you a follower of Christ? Not am I a fan of Christ. Not am I a church attender. Not am I an enthusiastic admirer. Not do I have three Bibles in my home. Not if the ringtone on my phone is Chris Tomlin worship song or praise the Lord, oh my soul. But am I a follower of Christ? You see, being, being a follower of Jesus causes me, it forces me to look at life differently, to live the life differently. Okay, you do something to hurt me. How do I respond? Well, it all depends. Am I a fan or am I a follower? My flesh tells me, do this. It'll feel good. And you deserve it. And besides, it's really no big deal Yeah, it is a big deal. That is, if I am a follower of Jesus. You know, one of the most sobering and terrifying passages in Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talks of a time when when many people who thought they were his followers are stunned to find out that they were never his followers. All they were were enthusiastic admirers and fans all along. And it doesn't end well for them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the king of heaven. Not everyone with Jesus bumper stickers and Jesus t-shirts. But only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many. Many. Not a few. Many. Will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name drive out demons and perform miracles. And your name preach sermons and in your name, keep the nursery. In your name, work in the parking lot. In your name, fill out communion cups. And in your name, whatever. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
Away from me, you evildoer. Question, do those words of Jesus scare you a little? They terrify me. They terrify me. For myself and for you guys. Because I don't want any of you in this room. He says many. I don't want anybody in this room to hear Jesus say that. It's like, no, I don't know you. You were a fan. You were just waving your terrible towels. You were never a follower. You were just playing a game. You were just sitting on the fence. I, I don't want that. It scares me. Next question, what does Jesus say about following him? Very important question, right? Because I'm convinced that Jesus' idea about what it means to follow him is much different from the idea that many people today have about following him. In fact, the way that many follow Jesus today is really not that different than how I am now following Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, and Taylor Swift, and the rest. I understand the word follower or disciple is an important word. It's used a hundred times more in the New Testament than the word Christian. And it implies an ongoing commitment, a, a decision that has daily implications. It implies that you're on a journey, that you're on a path. And, and listen, the Bible describes this path as narrow and that it's not frequently traveled. In other words, it's not just a decision where you say, okay, I made that decision, so that's me. Instead, it's this ongoing commitment. For example, if I say I'm a vegetarian, which I am not, I got a roast in a crock pot right now. I can't wait to get at it. All right, uh, but if I said I'm a vegetarian, and then you said, well, well wait a minute, I, I see you eat meat all the time. And I said, well, I'm a vegetarian because I made a decision 15 years ago to become a vegetarian. But I've eaten, you know, I've eaten a lot of meat since then, uh, but I did make that decision to be a vegetarian back in 1942. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, that doesn't add up, it's not consistent. And so when we say follower, we're not just saying, okay, hey, I made this decision to follow Jesus way back when. Instead, we're saying, hey, no, 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 I made the decision. And this is a commitment that, 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 that gives direction to my life every day. It guides what I do and what I don't do. Where I go and where I don't go. What I say and what I don't say. Now, when we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus talks a lot about and we see demonstrated clearly in the disciples what it means to follow him. I'm going to read just two passages from Luke. The first is in Luke 9. Um, then he said to the crowd, and, and, and listen, well, what we're going to see here is that you know, it, it, it wasn't the size of the crowd Jesus cared about, right? It was what? It was the level of their commitment. Okay? It's a big crowd. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you lose it. Try to live for you. It ain't going to work. It's not working. It hasn't worked. never will work. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll, you'll save it. And what, you do to, and, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? I mean, what good is it, right? If you gain the whole world and you lose or forfeit your very self. And then just a little further down the road in Luke 14, we read large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, Jesus said. Now, now here, here's what you find in the New Testament in the Gospels, that Jesus from time to time will try to find out, hey, who's traveling with him and who's actually following him. Now, there's a distinction that gets made where this large group of people traveling with him and he wants to know who's following me and who's just traveling with me, right, for the food, for the benefits, to see the miracles. Now, to be clear, travelers are welcome. Some of you are travelers. You're learning more about Jesus. You're, you're getting to know him, and that's great. And you can keep traveling with them. But there comes a time when Jesus will challenge you to not just travel with him, but to follow him. And that's what happens. This is one of those moments. Large crowds. Who are the followers and who are the travelers? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, just even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Well, that will thin out a crowd, right? 
I mean, that's one way to figure out who's traveling with you and who's following after you. He says, if you, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you got to hate your family. Now, that does not seem like a great membership recruitment approach. I, I, I mean, if the local gym wants to get new members, that's not the language they're going to use, right? No. Instead, they're going to put up billboards and send out flyers and emails and, and to tell you, Here, here's how you will benefit. Here's all the ways being a member here is going to benefit you. They tried to sell you on their product. Jesus isn't doing that. So why does he use this language of hating your family? Now, obviously, to take this literally would contradict the core teachings of Jesus in Scripture, right? You know, so we, we know he's not telling, hey, go out and really hate and destroy your family. Uh, one translation translates it as, you must love me more than your family, which is probably more accurate, right? What Jesus is trying to say. You know, that in other words, Jesus is to be first, and everyone else is to be a very, 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 very distant second, right? I mean, Jesus is first, and everybody else is like, is like way, way back there. But you know what? I, I think it's important for us not to take away from his statement. In fact, I think to understand it, we have to understand that in that first century, a decision to follow Jesus would have oftentimes been considered as turning away from your family and your family choosing to turn away from you. Therefore, when Jesus says to the crowd, and he calls for this level of commitment, you can almost hear some of the people in the crowd getting pretty uncomfortable starting to ask questions. I mean, why would you say it, Jesus? Why would you make such a statement? I mean, doesn't he want a bunch of people traveling with him as a rabbi? I mean, doesn't it help if there's bigger crowds? I mean, why would he say something like this? And so Jesus explains in verse 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, let me be straight with you. Let me be straight with you. Here's the deal. Man, I, I want you to follow me. I, I want you to be one of my disciples. But, but I want you to understand, there, there's a cost. It, it, it's going to cost you something. I, I, I want you to know there's going to be some things required of you. He says, you're not going to go out and, and start building a building and not even think about what it's going to cost you. That, that wouldn't be a smart decision. First, you need to sit down and figure, hey, Here's what it costs. Am I willing to pay it? Here's what I'm signing up for. And that's one of the reasons we're, we're doing this nine-week conversation as a church family. You know, I, I, I want everybody to, to commit, to recommit and renew and say, I'm in. I want to be a part of what Maple Grove is doing and trying to be. But I also want us to know as a church, hey, here's the deal. Here's what we're signing up for. You know, here's what Jesus expects of you, right? It's not what I expect of you. It's what Jesus expects of us as his, his follower. I, I want you to know what it means, and, and I want it to be on November the 6th, I want it to be a significant decision where we say, you know what? I'm in. I'm in. Both feet. I'm in. Get it? Good. It, you know, as we, we look around the world, we, we can see that a, a lot of Christians are being persecuted and they're paying a heavy cost. And I, I, I was reading just this past week how in, in Southeast Asia, where persecution is very hard, pastors and church planners have actually come up with a series of questions that they ask people before they surrender to Christ and join the church. Like, hey, hey, we, we, we want you to know what the deal is. And, and are you really ready for this? And here's the questions they came up with. Are you willing to leave your home and lose the blessing of your family? Are you willing to lose your job? Think about it. There are people like you and I, right? They got husbands, wives, kids, dreams. Are you willing to forgive those who persecute you and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering for the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? 
Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Those are their questions. And they're like, okay. Okay, so you still want to sign up? Do you still want to be a part of this? They're just being honest. Hey, here's what it's going to cost you. Recently, while in Chicago, recruiting students for short-term mission trips, my son John met a young lady named Miriam who was studying at Moody Bible Institute. Now, she had been a, a Muslim from Northern Africa, and she had a pretty dramatic conversion Christmas 2012. She had been studying with a guy named David and Deborah, studying the Bible, and, and on Christmas Eve, David asked her a question. He just said, hey, you know, do you know where you would go when you die? And she had no answer. But yet she could sense that David had total confidence in where he would go. And she said, I, I want to have that same confidence. So David challenged her to pray to God to reveal himself to her so she could have that same assurance. So she spent all the Christmas Eve praying and crying out to the Lord. And, and she fell asleep and she had a dream. And dreams are big in that culture. She had a dream. And, and, and in this dream, Jesus came up to her and said, you know, if you follow me, I will give you living water. And when she woke up, her pillow was completely drenched with water. And so on Christmas morning, 2012, Miriam surrendered her life to Christ. And she told John that her plans are to go back home and, and to share Christ with her family and with her people which is extremely risky. And when asked about the risk, Miriam said, if I die, Jesus is worth it. And listen, as Jesus followers, we need to understand that following him, though we may never be put in those kind of situations, will still cost us something. Question, what has following Jesus cost you? What does it cost you? And, and, and there, is, there, is there a cost that Jesus is wanting you to pay that you're kind of not wanting to pay? Now let me say three things. Three awesome and transforming things that Jesus said about what it means to follow him. Are you ready? Are you ready? Sweet. Uh, following Jesus, it's an open invitation. Anyone, right? He says anyone. I like that, right? Anyone. Now, there's no requirements, no prereqs. Anyone. Everybody's invited. Sexual past, anyone. Alcoholic, anyone. Addict, anyone. Anger and pride issues, anyone. Recently divorced, anyone. Fearful and secure, anyone. Hypocrite, anyone. Republican, Democrat, anyone. Steelers fan, New York Giant fan, anyone. Uh, next fall in Jesus, it's a passionate pursuit. Come after me. Now, the term come after was a phrase used in the context of a romantic relationship. Understand, when Jesus says come after me, he's describing a passionate pursuit of someone you love. So the best way to understand what Jesus is wanting from us as his followers is to compare it to how we would pursue someone with whom we wanted to have a romantic relationship with. And yeah, I get that, right? I get that. I mean, in the fall of 1996, 20 years ago, you know, I went after, I pursued with great passion someone that I wanted to have a romantic relationship with. And in a little over three months, she was my wife. Never knew what hit her, all right? Uh, that's, how I, that's how I roll, okay? We, we, that's how you go after, he, that's how Jesus wants you to come, he wants you to come after him. Man, a passionate pursuit. A total surrender. Dying to and denying yourself. And that's tough, right? American culture. That's tough in the American church. Where many say, hey, no, 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 hold on, hold on now. <laughs> I, 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 I I, I didn't sign up for this self-denial plan. I, I got the platinum plan. <laughs> I, got the, I got that it's all about me, make it about me, make me happy plan. I don't know. I just not what I signed up for. But listen, it's total surrender. Bo Chansey in his book, I'm Going to Light Myself on Fire. we got to pray for one. By the way, are you praying for one? Amen. Think about your one. Throw up a prayer right now. 
for God to show you one person that you can share his love with, at work, at home, at school, in your neighborhood. He writes, following Jesus is an all or nothing deal. There's no such thing as partial surrender. In order to follow him, we must completely lay down our lives. We do not get to pick and choose what we hold on to and what we give up. Total surrender is the only option. Take a moment to examine your life. Who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? Who is the director of your life? Is it you or Jesus? Can't be both. If you answer both, you and Jesus, then total surrender has not occurred. Jesus will not stand for it. He will not share his throne. Call him selfish if you like, but that's just the way it is. Jesus desires you, and he's not willing to share you with anyone, including yourself. Total surrender is an outlandish extreme that justifiably produces discomfort in most. We may believe or accept the concept on a cognitive level, but in our hearts, most of us are holding on to hope that there will be a little wiggle room on the deal. We may desire the appearance of surrender, but we clearly know who's in control. This is not one of those fuzzy, hard-to-interpret theological ideals. It is clear-cut, total surrender, and nothing less is required. Nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus backing off of this. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your hopes, your dreams, your goals, your plans, your agenda, lifestyle, families, relationships, jobs, service, hobbies, gifts, talents, money, stuff, abilities, passions. The list goes on and on. He purchased you, purchased you, and the price was significant. Jesus is not negotiating to deal with you. His final offer is on the table. Total surrender. Now, now dying to yourself may mean, it, it may mean in a few weeks spending the night with some homeless guys at Pacham. See, Patrick, we need guys to spend the night, right? You may die to yourself. I don't want to go there. I don't want to lose sleep. Yeah, but it may mean that, right? These guys could use a kind word from you. Or it could mean cooking a meal. Dying to yourself means signing up to serve in the children's ministry at the Grove. It could mean reworking your budget so that you can give God the first fruits of your income. It, it, it could mean, dying to yourself could mean forgiving the person who hurts you without expecting anything in return. Dying to yourself could mean loving on someone who's been nothing but unkind to you. Dying to yourself could mean, and, and this one's really hard for me, you know, walking by that empty room in your home, I got one of those, and asking God, hey, is there a orphan or a child that should be sleeping in that bed? Down to yourself, maybe taking that risk and asking that friend out for lunch and slowly working the conversation around to Jesus. Down to yourself, maybe giving up your family vacation and money and going on a mission trip. Total surrender, an open invitation, a passion pursuit. Why is fallen Jesus worth it? If it wasn't worth it, we'd have every reason to stay in the stands. We're almost done, but this is good stuff. Here's why it's worth it. Because no one is who he is. And just who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator of all we see. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's always there. He's always been. He always will be. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is huge. He's holy. He's mighty. He's God. Number two, why is it worth it? Because no one has done what he has done. Jesus has cleaned up your past, paid a debt, he didn't know because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay. He's cleaned up your past. He's filled your present with his presence, and he's guaranteed your future. And, and i got to say that again because I wrote in my notes, there needs to be some shouting and applause there, right? Uh, here's what he's done. you got a lot of sin and mistakes. Jesus Christ has canceled your past. He's cleaned up your shame. He's filled you with his presence, and he's guaranteed your future in heaven, right? No one's done that for you. No one has done what he has done. Amen. And, and no one can do what Jesus can do. He can do anything. Nothing is too hard 
for our God. He can deliver what he promised. He can bring peace to any conflict. He can conquer any problem, calm any storm, defeat any enemy, move any mountain, restore whatever is broken, and bring back to life what we thought was dead. He can do anything. And why is it worth it? Because no mission can accomplish what his mission can. You see, God is still working through his followers today. Doing the, 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 the very things, right, that he did. Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 12, he says, hey, you, you know this stuff that you've been seeing me do? He said, this is my paraphrase, you know this stuff you've been seeing me do? Guess what? You'll be doing the same stuff. And even greater stuff. Because I'm going back home to the Father you see, through us, through the church, Jesus is still setting captives free. He's still giving hope to the hopeless. He's still bringing freedom to those people in prison. He's still bringing release to those who are oppressed. He's still doing those things. He's changing hearts. He's changing eternities. He's changing where people will spend forever. That's why it's worth it. Nothing can do what his mission can do. Amen. You know, as we wrap up and come to our time of communion, you know, what I've been praying for is repentance. You know what? I'm a number one fan of the Patriots, right? Jesus is not looking for more fans, right? And I know I got some fan left in me. And I pray that if you got some fan left in you, that you repent that you repent and say, Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to surrender to you. And I'm willing to pay the cost. And maybe you're here today and you're not sure even what it means to follow Jesus. Like Miriam, you're not sure, right? Like if it all ended today or you ended today, you're not sure, you're not confident where you would end up. Come talk to me, right? You know, we can talk about that. Book of Acts, we see people being set free time and time again. You know, you don't need to leave here without that assurance if you don't have it. You know, Jesus was willing to take a hit. He took a hit on the cross, right? You know, he paid a heavy price. You know, his body was broken and his blood was shed to give us freedom and to give us hope, right? And would you guys stand? I'm going to pray and give you, and again, really spend time with the Lord we have our communion off at various stations on the side. You'll see it over there. Uh, we also have uh, our offering boxes are there as well. God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity, God, to, to be in your presence. And Jesus, I pray for a spirit of repentance among your people. I pray for a spirit of repentance within me. Search me, O oh God, and point out any way in me that's still a fan that still wants to ride the fence, any way that I just pop off the jersey when I don't want to do the things you've asked me to do. And Jesus, I pray you just move in this room and there's a spirit of repentance and a desire to follow you because you're worth it, because of who you are and what you can do and what we're a part of and what you've already done for us. Jesus, thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. May we remember you as we celebrate communion. Amen.